open your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 12, that Jesus has come on the scene proclaiming what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the way that you know that the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says, just watch me. And so Jesus is healing. He's making lame people walk and blind people see. He's casting out demons. He's doing all sorts of, of supernatural things that give us a glimpse, okay, that God is on the move. He is active. He is working. He's not forgotten his people. He has begun a redemptive process that's going to culminate one day when Jesus returns. But for this moment in this world that's outwardly wasting away, Jesus gives these little signs of hope. But here's the, the, the crazy kind of juxtaposition in Matthew's gospel. It's almost the more Jesus reveals the kingdom, the more he shows who he is and what he can do and what he's accomplishing, the more hard-hearted the Pharisees become. It's like when you, when you ask someone to put, stick out their hand and you push on their hand, and what do they do? They push right back, and you push, and they push. And that seems to be the Pharisees. It's, it doesn't matter what Jesus does. It doesn't matter how many miracles he accomplishes or how evident he makes it to them and how plain writes it across their forehead. The more he does this, the more their hearts are hardened. And this morning, we're going to get a glimpse into those hearts. But in doing that, you should know what we're really getting a glimpse into is our own souls, right? Because what Matthew's going to remind us is that unbelief, hard-heartedness, refu you know, refusing God, resisting him and his Holy Spirit, it's rarely an evidentiary thing. What, do you know what I mean by that? It's rarely about the evidence, it's rarely about, well, you know, I, Pastor, I would just believe if I just had one more sign. If, I, if, if, if God would just do this, then I would know for sure. If, 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 if this, then that. And what we're going to find out in this story is that, that, that repentance, coming to God, is not about the evidence. It's not about needing more knowledge. It's not about simply reading more books figuring out the, the worldview, the schema, it's, it's simply a matter of what's going on in the depths of our souls. And that's where Matthew is taking us this morning. So we're going to be in Matthew 12. It's a short passage, five verses, verses 28 through 32. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us that in former times and former places, you spoke to us through your prophets, through visions, through supernatural works. But in these last days, these latter days, you've spoken to us through your son. And he is enough. And so, Lord, give us faith to see that, to hear that, to embrace that. Father, give us tender hearts when it comes to your merciful approaches to us with changes you want to make in our life. Give us grace. Give us a heart of faith. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. You may take your seats. There's three things I want to direct you to in this passage. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. They all flow from one another. And here's where we're going. First of all, we're going to see in this passage a request, what seems like a reasonable request from the Pharisees on their part to Jesus. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus's response to their request. And lastly, we're going to see how this whole situation resolves itself. There's going to be a resolution. There's going to be a a punchline, something that, that Jesus does in response to their request that sort of crystallizes their hearts and by God's grace crystallize, I hope and pray, our hearts so that we can see Jesus as well. So let's start with the request. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, on the surface, let me just say, that can be seen as a very reasonable request. Because if you go back into the Old Testament, whenever God would call a prophet or a messenger and send them to speak on his behalf to the people of Israel, they would always demonstrate their authority and the fact that they were the real thing, not a false prophet, they were actually being sent by God, they would do what? A sign. So, so think about poor Moses. He's led to lead two million people, but he has a great fear of what? Public speaking. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? And, 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 God, and Moses is like, well, how in the world are they going to know? Is Pharaoh going to know the most powerful man in the world? Know that I'm being sent from you. And God says, no problem. Here's a staff. And when you take this staff and throw it on the ground, it'll turn into a serpent. And when you take that staff and you will strike the water with it, it will turn into blood. And this validates, it will show everyone that you are my messenger, you are my prophet. We see the same thing in uh, the ministry of the prophet Elijah, right? Remember Elijah, he gathers on Mount Carmel, it's the, it's the bad dudes and, and, the, and the leaders of Baal, and they're going to make their, their sacrifice, and Elijah's going to make his sacrifice, and they dance around all day. And what kind of sign does Elijah call down to validate the authority of God. Give you a hint, 
they all needed fire retardant suits, right? The fire comes down from heaven and consumes everything in its wake. So this is not an unreasonable request. It's not without precedent, okay? Um, they want to know, Jesus, you say you're from God, show us the money. Give us a sign. Show us that you are the real deal. Now, what kind of sign were they asking for? Now, if you look at the parallel passage in Luke chapter 9, and even in Matthew 16, where they, and by the way, they were always asking for a sign, okay? They, they're, they're just like your, your kids who come and try to ask you 12 different ways to do the same thing that you've already said no to. Kids, we know your game, right? We know, we totally know what you do because we did it, right? You, you change the speech, you make it more strategic, you put it in the form of a question like Jeopardy or whatever the case may be. And this is what these guys were always doing. They asked this Jesus multiple times, but we know in another one of these episodes, what do they ask for? A sign from where? Heaven. They didn't want just a sign. They wanted all the power and authority of Elijah. They wanted Jesus to call down that fire. They wanted him to consume the Romans. They wanted him to give them the sword to slay the evil occupiers. This was their intention. They had a very particular kind of sign to which Jesus says, and I quote, a wicked and adulterous nation asks for a sign. Now, why in the world would Jesus say this? Clearly had not read How to Win Friends and Influence People, right? He just, he's just not that guy. He, just, he goes right to it. He didn't go, hmm, that's a reasonable request in light of the prophet Elijah and Moses. And No, the reason he says this, while on the surface their request seems reasonable, we know throughout this narrative, we've seen it. What, what, is, what does Matthew tell us? Jesus knew their hearts. And here, Jesus knew that while their request seemed reasonable, their motive was far from it. Now, why? Because they had already seen, in a very short span of time, more signs, more supernatural works than any Israelite for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Remember that even the hard-hearted people, when they saw this mute man talk and and have this demon exercise, it says they were amazed, they were dumbfounded, they were, they were blown away out of their, their minds. They had seen miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And they weren't doing this in order to be convinced. They were doing it to test him. They were doing it to discredit him. At some point, they figured our request will be so unreasonable, Jesus will go tell us to jump in the Sea of Galilee and we can say, we told you so. That's their heart. The reason Jesus says they're wicked and adulterous, now please hear this, their minds were already made up. The game was rigged. The verdict had already been sealed. This was all for show. They had, they had already seen it all. They, they were going to see even more. We're, when we get to Matthew 26, um, next century or whenever that's going to happen, Matthew 26, we're going to find out. They knew Jesus was resurrected, 
And what do they do? They paid off the soldiers not to tell anyone. This was not about not knowing who Jesus was or not being convinced. Oh, they knew full well, but their minds were made up. You don't have a sign problem, Jesus says. You've got a heart problem. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. It's interesting to speculate what, what would have happened if Jesus had actually called down fire. Well, we just saw two weeks ago what they would do. They would have figured out a way around it. They would have explained it away in some way. They've already said he's casting out demons by the authority of Satan. I'm sure they could have figured some workaround to what was happening. Remember when the Pharisees came to John the Baptist out in the wilderness Everybody else was getting, being baptized, but he called them brood of vipers. It's because he knew they're not here to do business with God. They're here to discredit me, to stand in judgment. They're not sincere. And what are we to, to learn from all this? Well, so let me just say this. God is not to be trifled with. God is not a God who bargains with humans. You know, in the, the movie The Fugitive, the U.S. Marshal Sam Shepard, a.k.a. Tommy Lee Jones, right? What, what does he whisper in the ear of one of his officers who thinks he should have negotiated with this particular bad guy? What does he say? I don't bargain. And this is such a glimpse into what we would call postmodern spirituality. You see, postmodern spirituality says we accept God on our terms. If God is helpful or Jesus is helpful or whoever is helpful in this particular way, then, then appropriate him in that way. But if he says something over here that you don't like or you don't agree with or that's offensive to your neighbor or won't get you promoted, then, then, then do something else. But here we are reminded God deals with humanity not on our terms, but on his. He is God, and guess what? You're not, and I'm not. When we preach through the book of Romans, remember Romans 9 was all about this. It was all about that God sets the conditions on what it means to know him. We don't come to God wanting to strike a bargain. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever bargained with God? We chuckle because, let's be honest, we all have, all right? Particularly in football season, quite honestly, right? I have a bargain story. I don't have time to go into it. Yeah, I do. So 1998, I said, God, if, if you just give Tennessee this one, this one win over Florida State, I live in Tallahassee, God. I live among the heathen, the pagan, please. And God said, I said, I'll never ask anything for you, from you again. And God said, I, it's a deal. And he, and he kept up his end of the bargain. We've had 25 years of absolute fertility, right? Well, in all seriousness, how many times have we found ourselves saying, hmm, God, if you, then blank. If God, if you just show up this time, I promise things will forever be different. 
God, I, I promise this time I'm really serious. If, if you will simply save my bacon in this way, just this one more time, I promise things will be different. Because how does bargaining with God work out for you? See, and, and we, we joke about some of this, but we test God when we come to him and, and ask him to show us things that he's already shown us. God, I'm, real, I, I'm really wrestling with this, Pastor Paul. I, I, I found the love of my life, um, and, and I, I just know that this is God's person for me, but I just can't find rest in my soul. And Well, tell me about that. Well, you know, this person, you know, they're, they're not a Christian, to which I want to say stop. Maybe the restlessness you have in your soul it's not about your childhood. It's not about your insecurities. It's about the fact that you're testing God. And God has made it abundantly clear already. Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm really, pray for me. I don't know whether to stay in my marriage or not. Well, what, well tell me, what's happening? Are you married to an axe murderer? Are you like, what, what, what's happening here? Oh, no, 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 just... Just we're not the same people we were when we married. We're, we're, we don't emotionally connect anymore. And I think Jesus at that point would say, a wicked and adulterous nation asks for a sign. I've already spoken. I've already given you everything you need to live your life and to honor and glorify me. Just trust me. Just follow me. So to wrap this point up, God has made it abundantly clear already that Jesus is his anointed. They don't want to, they, they don't believe because they don't want to believe. They have a heart far from God. And Jesus, under the second point, gives us insight into this, into our own souls. And this, listen to his response. And he says, a wicked, adulterous nation asks for a sign. But I, I want to unpack the particulars of his response. And, and imagine what Jesus is doing here, that he's, he's made a charge against them. Okay? You're wicked and adulterous. And now he wants to reach back into the past, into the Old Testament, and he wants to bring two stories to serve as two witnesses who will stand against them. Now, remember, this was powerful evidence for them because they were what? The teachers of the law. And so Jesus said, okay, I'm going to physician heal thyself. Let, let, let me draw two examples from the Old Testament to bring to bear in my indictment of you. And he cites two Old Testament stories one about Jonah and one about Solomon. Now, let me just say something, kind of a sidebar, not the main point of this text. In our cultural evangelical context, and you hear very influential leaders say things like this, that the problem, the reason people are walking away from the faith is, is there's just too much in the Old Testament that's offensive to people. And, and, and what we need to do is unhinge Jesus from the Old Testament. Because you realize every time Jesus 
quotes and speaks the Old Testament, he upholds it for what it is, the very word of God. Certainly, we interpret it through the lens of Christ, but we don't disregard it. We don't ditch it. We don't dismiss it just because there's parts of it that are culturally unpalpable to our age. But Jesus brings up two stories, the story of Jonah and the story of Solomon. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school with the felt boards and the giant fish that you says, think is a whale, but who knows if it's a whale, it could be a prehistoric sea monster. We don't know, right? Sw- swallows Jonah. Now, why is this the sea serpent swallow Jonah? Because Jonah is on the run. Jonah is running away from God. Jonah says to, 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 the, to the ship that he's escaping on, throw me overboard. I lay my life down because I know that I'm running from God. And God, by his grace, swallows Jonah, spits him back out onto the land, and says, listen, Jonah, even though you have been unfaithful, I'm faithful, I want you to go to the Ninevites, and I want you to preach a message of repentance, okay? And they repented. That's the story of Jonah just in in a tiny nutshell. Every Israelite knew it. You probably are familiar with it as well. One that you may not be familiar with is the story of the Queen of the South or the Queen of Sheba. That comes from 1 Kings chapter 10. So who was the Queen of Sheba? She was a queen, a pagan queen, a Gentile queen, somewhere on the continent of Africa, Ethiopia, we're not entirely sure. She had heard the, the, the acclaim of Solomon's fame and his riches and his wisdom far and wide, and she said, I want to go and see it with my own eye. Sound familiar, Pharisee? I want to see it with my own eye. And we know that she does, and she ends up giving glory to God. Now, here's a a good question. Why does Jesus pick these two Old Testament examples? I think there's a couple of just powerful reasons. You know, Solomon and Jonah were, not, were hardly models of faithfulness. Do you know that? Jonah ran away from God. Jonah was dragged kicking and screaming back to Nineveh. And then even when he preached and they repented, what did Jonah do? He went and played video games and pouted under the tree. That's how the book ends. He... he He's whining, he's melancholy, and he's he's pouting that God would lead these people to repentance. You know, Jonah's absolutely not that guy you want to invite to Thanksgiving dinner. You know that, right? He's like the sadness character in in Inside Out. You just don't want want him around. But even Solomon, whom we give great acclaim to as the wisest person who ever lived, you know Solomon did not end well. His life did not end well. Solomon barely made it by the grace of God over the finish line. And why? The wisest man on earth was also the most foolish man on earth. He was addicted to sexuality, and he was enslaved to his 800 wives who drew him away from the Lord. Now, what's, why, is, why is Jesus bring these two to bear? I think his point is very simple. As flawed as Solomon and Jonah were, the people they minister to still recognize them as God's anointed. The, the people of, of Nineveh, they, they, is, in all his imperfections, they knew 
something was different about the message of Jonah. Solomon, despite all of his fatal flaws and characters, the Queen of Sheba recognized there's something unique and authoritative about this man. And now Jesus' point is, and now I'm here. I'm greater than Solomon. I'm greater than Jonah, and you can't recognize me? I've done works you could only dream about. I have, I have taught with authority. People have been amazed. God has sent his only anointed son. And what does God say every time he speaks audibly in the New Testament about his son? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Follow him. Obey him. This is God's greatest revelation of himself to come as the God-man. And yet you refuse to recognize me, the the queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh sit in judgment upon you. And boy, those are fighting words, right? Because who were the Ninevites? Well, those are the blasted Assyrians. They're the ones who conquered the northern kingdom, sent all the people into exile, destroyed the ten northern tribes of Judah. They were hated. They were despised. In fact, Tim Keller mentions this, I think it's probably true. One of the reasons Jonah hated the Ninevites so much is they very well could have been responsible for his own family's death and demise. And here they are, this pagan, far from God nation, and yet what? They repented. And they didn't even need a sign. All they needed was the preaching of God's word. Even the queen of Sheba from, from, from Africa, right? That, 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 that's where the pagan people live. Far from God. But yet, in response to the imperfect example of Solomon, listen to what she says. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Now listen to this, verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. See, even the queen of Sheba could recognize this. And what is the name that she uses for Solomon's God? Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. This is a woman who has come to know the living and true God. And Jesus says, I call all of these people to testify against you, Pharisees. You find, I find you guilty. You have everything that you need, but you refuse to believe. Now, here's a question. It's a trick question. Got an honest, total, total trick question. Who are we, who are you in this story? And let's be honest, there's not a great choice, right? Unless you say Jesus, and that's, that's not an option, right? Who, who are you in the story? You see, in a lot of ways... 
a lot of us are, 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 are religious leaders, quote unquote, just by virtue of our proximity to the faith. Most of us, many of us have grown up adjacent to the faith all of our lives. Our parents are Christians, we've grown up in church, we went to church camp, we've had Christian exposure. But maybe for some of us, the closer we have gotten to the presence of the living God, the more distasteful it has become. The more hardened in our hearts that we have become, not because we don't know who Jesus is, it's because we do, but I'm not going there. Maybe you're like the Ninevites. You grew up far, far, far from the presence of God. You have no spiritual heritage. You have no spiritual background. To which Jesus would say, I don't care. All I care is not about your past. I just care about your heart right now. Will you turn to me? And the reason the Assyrians rise up in condemnation of you Pharisees is because they knew they needed me. They had a heart for change. They had a heart for repentance. And the question is, who are we? Who are you? I find that on one hand challenging, but also greatly encouraging. It doesn't matter where you've been. It matters, but it doesn't, in God's eternal economy, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't that Jesus' invitation to all of us is to come to me. Which brings us to our last point, the resolution. How does Jesus punctuate this discussion? And I think verses 39 through 40 are, it's the punchline, it's the, it's the main point of the text, it's the big takeaway, if you want to say that, and Jesus simply says this, no, so he said, an evil and adulterous nation asks for a sign. Then he says this, no sign will be given it, okay, wait a minute, except, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, if you've ever traveled internationally, and the other person doesn't speak English, you realize no matter how loudly and slowly you say it, they still don't understand you. You got that, right? It just goes right over their head, just like their language goes right over your head. And you have to sense that probably at this moment, this is, whoo, <laughs> they're probably like, what? Okay, whatever. Um, but looking back on it, this statement would have had profound meaning. Now, what is Jesus referring to? He's saying that when, Moses, when Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, that was a precursor, that was a prefigure, that was a type, that was a pointer to something else that was going to happen. I, Jesus says, am going to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth and then be spit back out. He's obviously talking about his death and resurrection. And he's saying, look, I'm not giving you guys any more signs I'm done with signs, except for one. And this sign is going to be the most important sign. And it's going to be the only sign you will ever need. And here it is. I'm rising from the grave. And when you see that sign, 
you know that that's the most important sign, that's the decisive sign, and that's all you need. So there's kind of been this question kind of lurking around in the back maybe for you as you've read the story. Well, Pastor Paul, is it wrong to ask God for a sign? Um, it, what do we think about signs? Does God, does God give them? What are they? How does that work? And, and, and my short answer, does God still give signs or should we ask for a sign? The, the answer here is yes and no. And here, here's what I mean. All of us at times in our life can point to things that God supernaturally, sovereignly did to confirm his promises and his direction for us. I was going here on a Saturday night to a party after the football game, but there was a street preacher handing out tracts, and I took that as a sign that God did not want me to go here, but to go here, and he used this to save me. Oh, yes, I do believe God gives signs. Absolutely. I think we can, we can point to different times in our life, God's supernatural providential work. Now, remember, those signs are never outside of his word. They're never contradictory to his word. They're, they're never in opposition to his word. They're always confirmatory of his word. God doesn't give you a sign to divorce your spouse unbiblically. That is not something you have to pray for. God does not give you a sign to be disobedient. That's not what we're talking about here. Sometimes, in his grace, God does that. But be careful. Christian, some of you are wrestling right now with the silence of God. Pastor Paul, I just feel like God is so distant. I don't feel like he's speaking to me. I, I just kind of feel, feel him sort of, not even in the background, he's, just, he's, just, he's not there. To which we go with faith and truth over feelings and say, that's not true. God has given you a sign, Christian, and this sign is enough. And even if you quote unquote don't get any other sign the rest of your life, you've gotten the most important sign. And what is that? Jesus died and rose again. And even when you feel far from him, you need to know that his death and resurrection continue to serve as a sign for you. And boy, isn't that important when you feel like you don't hear anything else in your life. It's why we go back to the truth of the word of God and say, God, you haven't forgotten me. You died for me, Jesus. You, you, I was united with you in your death. I'm united. I was united with you in your resurrection. And I'm now united with you. Your spirit, Jesus, is living in me. There's, there's no condemnation for me. I, I'm, you're never going to leave me or forsake me. Now, granted, sometimes... It seems like God might be more like the, the airline traffic controller, the tower, way in the background is keeping things running versus the, the guy in the plane, driving the plane. But regardless, God is here. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he reminds all of us, Christian, I've given you everything that you need. Now, God's a gracious God. 
And sometimes we ask for a sign and God is gracious in his mercy to do that. But we don't live our lives by a theology of signs. People do this and shipwreck their faith. You've heard me say this in some form or fashion, right? That, that apostasy, unbelief, turning away from God is rarely about the evidence. It's rarely about people's question with the truth. It's always a question about the goodness of God. God, why have you abandoned me? God, why didn't you come through right here? God, why haven't you shown up? To which Jesus says, but I already have. I will never leave you or forsake you because I've died and I've risen again and I've given you the only sign. If it's the only one you ever get, I am him. John chapter 20, Thomas was one of those. You know his story, Doubting Thomas. He said, I'm not believing, so I'll put my finger there and then my hand here, and, and let, let's remember what he says. And this, now this is a sign to us, and it's a promise. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And what Jesus says next, I do not think it's a rebuke to Thomas. I think it's, it's a sign to you. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, a lot of times when we come to the table at the end of our service, we rightly, rightly and appropriately highlight the death of Jesus, the body broken for us, the blood shed for us. But do you realize that's only half a gospel? The reason we can come to the table, and this is not just tradition or vain religiosity or a ritual, is because Jesus is actually alive. He rose from the grave, and by his spirit, he dwells in all who have faith and are trusting in him. We come this morning in the hope of the resurrection. We come in the assurance of the sign that God has given us. So Christian, whatever it is that afflicts your soul this morning, disease, divorce, death, separation, conflict, anxiety, doubt, Jesus says, I'm big enough for all of it. Just come to me. Why don't you bow your heads and just for the next moment or two, ask God to prepare your hearts as we come to the table. As you reflect on the passage this morning, and I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward as well, prepare to serve the elements.